We live in one of the most religiously observant countries in the world. Many working class communities and communities of color are rooted in religious traditions. Yet for over 40 years, the religious right has focused much of its energy on seizing control of religious narratives and institutions. This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon. Um, Hello, my name is Fran Quigley. I am a member of the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. Our guest on the podcast today is Colleen Shaddix. Colleen is a journalist who has worked for newspapers. She's worked for nonprofit organizations. She has written many, many freelance articles. And oftentimes her writing is focusing on people who struggle, people who struggle with illness, people who struggle with poverty, people who struggle with discrimination. And those articles have appeared in the in the big settings. The, she has had her articles appear in the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPRs, and many other outlets. Now, along with a co-author, Colleen just completed a book on the everyday lives of persons who are living in poverty and the broken policies that make their lives so much more difficult. Colleen is a devout Roman Catholic, and Colleen is also a committed and active socialist and a member of the DSA. So we have a lot to ask her about. Colleen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Fran. Well, I'd like to start, if I can, with asking you a little bit about your faith journey. I I do know that you grew up as a Roman Catholic, and now you're a practicing Roman Catholic. So was there this smooth, unbroken line between there and now? Oh, no. No, no, no. <laughs> um, so my family was was very observant, um, very devout. You know, we had holy water fonts in the house. Wow. Um, yeah. But uh, I would say that my mother tried very hard to live the faith in, in you know, basic kindness and things like that. Uh, my, my dad was a person who had had a lot of trauma in his life and was uh, very angry and the unhappiest of men um, and really virulently racist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was confusing to me, right? Mm-hmm. We'd go to church on Sunday, I'd hear the gospels and I thought, I like that. I want to be on that team. Um, And then we'd come home and hear dad say things that just seemed antithetical to everything um, that we were hearing in church. I do remember one time when I was little, he was going on about the welfare queens. That was a favorite subject. Um, And how horrible they were and these liberals were stealing his money to support these baby makers and i said to him daddy you shouldn't talk like that because if you read the gospel you'll see that jesus is a liberal and how old were you at this time i don't know eight or nine wow um so i got sent to my room (laughs) (laughs) to think about why i was wrong um and i did 
still didn't think that I was wrong. Um, <laughs> so I started continued in that vein for a while. I wanted to be a nun when I grew up. Um, but then high school came around and I don't know if it was adolescent rebellion or something deeper, but you know, I saw a failure to live up to the gospel message, I guess, mm-hmm. within my own house. And also I was going to a Catholic school at that time and it wasn't, uh, wasn't great. It was, uh, there was a lot of emphasis on, you know, making sure the top button was buttoned on your uniform. <laughs> but, you know, it was a fairly privileged environment and we did absolutely nothing for people in need. Really nothing. Oh, wow. And so I left the church at that point. I never I never had doubt. I never flirted with atheism or anything like that. I was always mm-hmm. sure. I could always feel the presence of God. I was just mad at him for a long time. <laughs> So I I went on with life. I um, grew up, became a journalist. Uh, and at one point I got reprimanded by my boss for writing too many stories about people in poverty. Um, he said, that stuff kills us in the suburbs. Wow. Wow. And yeah. And uh, he said, he said to me, you are not going to write any more stories about people with AIDS. Oh, my goodness. And how did you respond to that? I said, that's not Christian and I won't do it. Um, And I had no idea where that came from. You know, I was, who is this person who is speaking almost? Um, And you were not a churchgoer at that time. I was not. I was actively hostile. And you were in your 20s or so? Is that? I was in my 20s. I was in my late 20s. Yeah. Early stage of the career and everything. So did you, what, how did he react to that? Did, were you able to stay in the role? I, I could have, I mean, he wasn't going to fire me. Um, I had like, I actually, they liked me because I wrote a weekly humor column that was extremely popular, but I quit. I just, you know, I mean, that was the deal. The stories that I cared about weren't going to be covered anymore. Um, and I could have gone somewhere else, but it really became clear to me that that was kind of happening to all my friends at different newspapers that, um, You know, there was this real, this was the early 90s, and there was a belief that we were losing readership to TV, so we should be more like TV. You know, we should (laughs) run more sort of frothy features. That hasn't quite changed totally, has it? Uh, No, and, and, you know, newspaper readership hasn't recovered by that. That was not, (laughs) becoming more like the competition wasn't the wasn't the solution. So anyways, I, I quit and I went to work in a soup kitchen. I just started volunteering in a soup kitchen every day. Um, and writing, you know, my own stuff freelance. And I mean, that's sort of, that's kind of how life has gone. I, um, I work for a lot of progressive nonprofits and I also do a fair amount of freelance writing. And, and that's often focused on healthcare issues, right? Right. I'm really, really interested in health disparities. You know, I'm interested in injustice generally, but I've always felt like um, health is really where it shows up. You know, you lose 10 to 15 years of life in the United States for being poor. 
Um, there are multiple diseases where survival rates have really improved, heart disease, um, survival rates have really improved in this country, but not for African-Americans. Um, I just think that's the biggest story in the world. And mm -hmm. I can't believe it's not on the front page of every newspaper every day that, you know, there are all these preventable deaths that are happening because of our crappy social conditions. Right. And um, I want to ask you about that a little bit more and, and specifically um, what we're learning every day here as we go through the COVID-19 pandemic about all that. Um, but I don't want to I, I don't want to leave you hanging as a former Roman Catholic. Uh, do you, it, when you started working at the soup kitchen, did you find your way back to the church? I did. Um, yeah, it wasn't really an easy road back. I, um, I, I fortunately, because I was a reporter, I had interviewed one of our bishops here in Connecticut, um, who's a, a really good guy. Um, he was kind of the principal mover behind the pastoral letter on the economy. Oh, wow. Um, and so I knew Bishop Peter very slightly. And I said, can we have lunch? I, I'm really lost. And we just started having these long conversations. I mean, I guess in retrospect, you would say he was my spiritual director at the time. Oh, you went to the top. I did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, almost the top. There's more hierarchy, but that, that's that's for for uh, locally. That's as high as you're going to get. That's wonderful. That uh, and so he was receptive to you coming in as someone who had been angry at the church and disillusioned with the church. Oh, yeah. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. He wasn't the archbishop. He wasn't running the diocese. He was an auxiliary bishop um, okay. and very concerned with Hispanic ministry, very concerned with economic justice issues. So, you know, we were simpatico. So you you have come back to regularly attending church. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I want to talk about your socialism here in a minute, but I want to I want to ask you, you know, a lot of there's a lot of former Roman Catholics in the United States and you were a former Roman Catholic and now you're you're back again. I'm a former, former Roman Catholic. Yes. <laughs> That's right. A recovering, recovering Catholic. <laughs> um, so so what has I I, I, I assume you you obviously you did you get over got over the disillusionment that you had you know what keeps you going what keeps you to being a part of the church when so many other folks have walked away just like you did you know i think it's it's really it's a mystery um <laughs> the eucharist is really central to me right now when i can't receive because we're not having public masses mm -hmm. it's just a big hole in the middle of me Oh, I need the Eucharist. I really need the Eucharist. Um, and the church certainly has its flaws. God knows. Um, <laughs> but when I've gone to other denominations and sort of test driven their services, they don't speak to me. They just mm. don't speak to me the same way. There's a richness to Catholic liturgy and Catholic devotions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the rosary has been incredibly important in my life. Um, 
something that my mom taught me and was just so important to all the women in my family, the Marian devotion, the, it's funny, it's, it's, it's the most male hierarchical church. (laughs) And yet it elevates this human woman in a way that I don't think any other faith does. Oh, interesting. Um, so the, you know, the blessed mother is really important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I just don't think that you get that in the same way anywhere else. And that's not to say that other denominations are in any way lesser, right? I mean, I have friends who have beautiful, enriching lives thanks to being UCC or Quaker or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I'm Catholic. I'm 100% Catholic. That's that's really interesting. And you're 100% Catholic. You are also an active member of DSA, a, a very active and outspoken socialist. So so tell me about that. How did you, uh, I assume you weren't a socialist growing up in your Catholic household. I mean, when did you come to identify yourself as, as a socialist? Well, so I mean, it's really identification, right? Because I always believed in economic justice. Um, And I don't know how you get that without socialism. Mm -hmm. I mean, no, you know, no capitalist society has really, uh, the the closer one comes to socialism, uh, the more economic justice that you have. I think you can look at any society on the planet and see that. Um, I started actually a adopting the name, becoming a DSA member, actually when my son recruited me. <laughs> he, when he was in college, this was, I don't know, uh, six years ago or something, he he joined DSA and he said, mom, you know, it sounds like everything you say. And so um, I joined, and I think it's important to me to identify as a socialist because neoliberalism just isn't getting us anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people need to come out and say, no, we don't need to tweak the system. We don't need to make the system better. We really need to rethink things. We need to recognize that certain things are human rights like healthcare, like a roof over your head, like three square meals a day. And you just don't get there being a Democrat. And I assume that you've had this conversation with folks. Do you find that there's value in, in, in saying to folks, you, presumably the listener, has some uh, similar beliefs about economic justice as you do? Hey, let's label this that we, we believe in socialism and we and we believe that capitalism is broken do you do you find that to be a valuable conversation yes i do because you de-demonize the word right you know whenever you talk about anything progressive in this country the pushback is that's socialism <laughs> and my answer is well yeah you know it's not evil it's just not bad. It's it's right. a it's a system that much of the world adopts to one degree or another. It's a system that we adopt in in some 
some areas of our lives even you know we have socialized roads people are just fine with that mm-hmm. um so i think it's important to talk about it i think you know the more you hear things the less scary they become right so right. yeah i'm a socialist can't imagine being anything else <laughs> and so again, I think you've mentioned it because you mentioned about the gospel message resonating with you from a young age. I mean, do you you find that your Christianity and your socialism are they run together? They're compatible? Yeah, absolutely. Matthew twenty five, right? You know, <laughs> you're supposed to feed the hungry and care for the sick, and we don't do that under capitalism. Mm-hmm. Do you get uh, either from your uh, Catholic? colleagues or from your socialist colleagues do you ever get a pushback from either group saying how can you be the other yeah um much more from my progressive friends about Mm -hmm. my religion Mm -hmm. um you know the catholic church is seen as being sort of this sexually repressive male-dominated institution um which it is, uh, <laughs> but that's not all it is. Mm-hmm. All institutions are flawed. You know, I think that the church, to the extent that it's it's run by human beings who have human failings, is, is really pretty flawed. Um, but to the extent that it's the mystical body of Christ, it's not. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what I believe in. But it is, I got to say, it is, um, it ticks me off fairly frequently when um people talk about christians with this sort of dismissive tone and i've had i've i've had a, a few arguments with folks about that right well i i and and you see where they're coming from right i mean in terms of popular discussion in the us in the year 2020 when folks think about christians they think about politically i think about mike pence or or the fallwells or yeah. or some of the 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 toxic uh, evangelical perspective. So how how do you respond to folks who are not Christian, uh, who are progressives and who have, who are demonizing uh, Christianity? Well, I, I say, I call it bigotry because that's what it is. You know, when you lump together an entire group of people and say that they are bad by virtue of their religion, I think that's fairly dangerous. But I, I will hasten to add that you know, you, you're putting us down because you think we're all Mike Pence mm-hmm. and we're not. And I will say that I think people on the left need to be a lot more open about sharing their faith so that the only people talking about God aren't people who just, you know, don't want same-sex couples to have wedding cakes. Right, right. You know, that's not what the Bible is about. Mm-hmm. The Bible, you know, as I argued with my father, I still believe that the Bible is quite a progressive document. And do you, you feel that something Do you with your health care? I know your writing has focused on on social determinants of health and and health care access and anti-poverty efforts. Do you write on faith issues on, on uh, doing just that, saying that this is uh, your 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 economic views come from your religious views? Yeah, um, less so. Um, I do, I blog for Religious Socialism, the DSA Mm -hmm. site. 
Um, and from time to time, I've written op-eds, um, you know, like I had one in the Hartford Current when um, I, I, I actually, I've forgotten which mass shooting it was um, oh, about, but it was after one of the shootings where the conservatives came out with their um, thoughts and prayers. Um, and I wrote about the fact that prayer is not meant to change God. Prayer is meant to change you. It's meant to strengthen you to do what you need to do in the world. And obviously, one of the things that we need to do in the world is pass sensible gun laws in this country. Um, so to the extent that there are opportunities to do that, yeah, I do look for those opportunities. And we are, as we speak today, of course, in, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, what lessons, as someone who has written about the injustices of our healthcare and our economic system and been an advocate on those issues for, for decades now, what lessons do you think are, or, or are there lessons that, that are being just shoved in our face by, by the U.S. response to no, this pandemic? There are a lot of lessons. One is that the workers in the lowest paid, lowest respect jobs are doing the things that we absolutely need to function as a society. Now they're the heroes, right? Yeah. They are the absolute heroes. And when this is all over, if we can't pass a $15 minimum wage, at least, at least, shame on us. Absolutely shame on us. I am also struck that like the responses that you're seeing, any response that's going to work is is socialist, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's just send people money. Yeah. I, I read someone I think wrote in the Times that everybody's a socialist in a pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the other thing is that none of us can really be assured of our own good health while somebody else doesn't have access to care, right? Now, testing is free because your illness might actually threaten me, a privileged mm -hmm. person, right? That's, I mean, of course, that's what we need to do, but it is ridiculous that that isn't always the case. That's really interesting. Testing is free and we, obviously, treatment is not free, but testing is what protects me, the privileged person. It's what protects me, right. Oh. I can make you go home to your apartment and not leave, right? Right. Um, but gain you a ventilator might be something different. And, you know, Medicare for all. My God, imagine if we had a single oh healthcare system in this country coordinating our resources rather than every hospital going out and begging for masks. Uh, I thought um, Adam Gaffney, the physician who's the leader of Physicians for a National Health Plan, who obviously is, uh, they've worked for decades on Medicare for All advocacy, he said this isn't a healthcare system, it's an atomized chaos where every, uh, every hospital, every state is uh, every person for themselves trying to just grab whatever equipment they can. It's so true. I mean, it's just ridiculous that hospitals have to compete for ventilators. If if I were running a hospital, I would be competing for ventilators right now. Right. And do you was any of this as someone who has covered healthcare for for decades was 
did, did you see this coming down the pike? Did you, did you see that we weren't ready for anything like this? Yes, because the response to things like this really starts in local health departments. Mm -hmm. And there has been cutbacks in local and state government for decades now, right? As, as the Fed send less and less money downstream, those cuts come, come down to state and local health departments, which means they're just, there isn't the staff there to coordinate response in the way that it needs to be coordinated. We've also seen a lot of hospital closures over the past few years. Right, right. Um, we've seen fewer and fewer people go into primary care because it's harder to make a living the way we have our crazy reimbursement system going. So we're not prepared. We're, we're fundamentally not prepared to deal with this pandemic. And it's really, it's heroic seeing people work within the system that's left to do mm -hmm. the best that they can, but things could be much better. Right. Things could be way better. It doesn't have to be like this. And I'm not saying that if we had socialized medicine, this would still not be a crisis situation. Obviously it is, it's, it's unprecedented and countries that do have socialized healthcare are, are suffering through it. But I think when we finally write the book on this, we're going to find that socialized medicine served countries much better than our for-profit system. And when we write that book, do you expect that that book will be written in a time where the U.S. has Medicare for all? Do you think that before and after this pandemic, are, are you optimistic that we're going to see that in the next decade or two? Or two, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not optimistic about what's going to happen in 2020. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that once again, a, a centrist who's ill-equipped to uh, run against Donald Trump is going to get pushed to the front of the line and get the nomination. I think that Trump is going to get reelected. And obviously, there's no hope for Medicare for all at that point not for the rest of that administration. I really hope I'm wrong. I would so love to be wrong. Right. Yeah, on, on many of those <laughs> predictions, right, the who gets elected and what they do, uh, I, I share your hope, but I also share your concerns. Well, uh, Colleen, I want to ask you about your book because you've just finished a book, uh, and I want to ask you about the book, and I want to ask you a little bit about your co-author. Sure. So what's the book about? So the book is called Broke in America, Seeing, Understanding, and Ending U.S. Poverty. And it's about exactly what it sounds like, right? Um, it is, um, we talk to, to people in poverty, coast to coast, rural and urban communities. Um, then we looked at the policies that were contributing to their economic hardship and the difference, I think, between this book and a lot of others is we didn't stop by saying, oh, ain't it a shame. Um, we gave real policy solutions and a bit of a primer on activism to encourage people to work toward these solutions in their own communities. Um, and my co-author is Joanne Goldblum, who is an old friend and the CEO of the National Diaper Bank Network, which sounds mm -hmm. um, 
like exactly what it is. Um, <laughs> she helps people around the countries in community non-based in community uh, nonprofits distribute diapers to people in need because you can't use WIC or SNAP to buy diapers and you cannot send your child to childcare if you don't supply diapers. So it's this tremendous catch 22 that people in poverty get caught in. Um, Joanne is actually moving mountains right now as more and more people are experiencing at least short term poverty and the demand has gone up tremendously. Uh, that's amazing. And um, we are still figuring this out, Colleen. So I'm hoping that we're going to be able to put links in our show notes uh, when we post these, uh, uh, post the the podcast online. So I, I will definitely um, work to include a link to the, the Diaper Bank Network. Well, I can tell you it's real easy. National Diaper Bank Network dot org. OK, I give them money every month and so should you. All right. Wonderful. <laughs> Um, and Joanne, who I've had uh, the privilege of speaking to as well, Joanne comes from a different faith background uh, than you, right? Yeah, she does. Joanne is Jewish, um, not as religiously observant as I am, but the idea of repairing the world is very important to Joanne. Um, I really don't know anybody who sort of adopts other people's problems as her own quite as much mm-hmm. as Joanne does. Uh, you know, the way she got started in diaper banking, she was a social worker and she was going into people's homes and watching them basically dump out solids and put diapers back on kids. Um, and she, uh, was working with women who were receiving TANF, which is the federal cash welfare program. Mm -hmm. Um, and in order to do that, they had to go to job training classes. But of course, they couldn't go to job training classes if they couldn't put their kids in childcare and no childcare would accept the kids without diapers. So they were just trapped. Um, So Joanne just started getting all her friends to go buy boxes of diapers at warehouse clubs. And it grew and grew and grew. Um, And she started getting calls from people around the country who'd read about it and said, hey, that's a good idea. I'd like to do that. Um, but starting a nonprofit is is not an easy thing to do. So she decided to start this national network to assist people to do it. She has either started or helped grow more than 200 diaper banks in the country now. Oh, my. And so you're you're going upstream with this book, the two of you, and saying, here's what's causing this crisis. Here's why we need to have 200 different diaper banks in in the country. Yeah. Um, and it's really, it, it all comes together because Joanne helped me look at poverty, I think in a different way than I really ever had before. A lot of anti-poverty programs try to fix people, right? They need more education. They need mental health care. There's something wrong with the person, right? Mm -hmm. Which is not to say that there aren't people in poverty who need those services and should get them. However, if you don't have three meals a day, access to transportation, housing, you're you're never going to be able to climb out. Right. And we really, aid as it is set up in this country 
does not focus on basic needs. There are so many barriers to meeting your basic needs. You know, there are so many people that we interview who just don't have running water in their house and are never gonna unless something really changes. And if you don't have running water in your house, how are you supposed to show up at a job interview looking like somebody who somebody wants to hire? I talked to one woman who said that she and her brothers used to get teased all the time because their clothes smelled rank. So they just stopped going to school. So, you know, you can have all sorts of theories about how education could should change, but people need water. People need to be clean so they can go to school. And there are a thousand examples like that in the lives of people in poverty. And, and just to remind the listeners, their subtitle of your book is U.S. Poverty. This is not happening in uh, some remote country. This is happening in the United States of America, correct? No. I mean, I was a number of times people said to me, I'm supposed to be living in the United States because the the conditions in which they were living were really things that you would associate with less developed countries. But there are people in the United States living just just barely living. Well, thank you for that book. And that book is due to come out later this year, early next year. What's the timetable? February time 2021. Wonderful. Well, we will, we will look for that and look for, I'm sure we will have a excerpt or a review on the Religious Socialism uh, web, uh, website um, for DSA. It's religioussocialism.org. Um, Colleen, we have covered a lot of ground uh, and talking about your faith journey and your uh, socialism and your commitment to economic and healthcare justice. This is so inspiring. Do you have anything that that uh, we discussed that I that I didn't cover enough, or that you'd like to to say more about? I don't think so. I just I, there is a thought that I've had a lot in the past few weeks, which is, you know, people are really starting to look at the roots of what's wrong in this country because of the coronavirus crisis. People are starting to say, wow, most Americans don't have $400 in the bank to cover an emergency. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that once the crisis is over, that realization doesn't go away. We don't just go back to business as usual. Business as usual really stinks for a whole lot of people. And we need to hold on to that. We need to remember. I hope that things get a lot better for America really quickly. I hope that we contain the virus. I hope we're able to resume our lives. But once that happens, we can't forget how the injustice of our system really, really put people behind the eight ball during the COVID-19 outbreak. Well, if that's not a terrific prayer, I don't know what one is. So thank you so much, Colleen, for, for joining us. Your, your faith is inspiring, both your faith in your religious tradition and your faith in economic justice and socialism. We will look for your book. Uh, we'll look for your articles. We'll look for your podcasts. Uh, thank you for, for sharing with us today. Thank you, Fran. This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. 
This episode was produced by Jeremy McMahon with intro music by Party Dark. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religiousSocialism.org. If you liked what you've heard, please consider supporting us on Patreon.